0: Welcome, everybody. My name is Makal Nasrani, and this is Islam for Christians, episode 37, Biblical Figures in Islam, part two, Noah and Abraham. We left off last time with the first people and Adam's clashes with Iblis. The dynamic of life on Earth was set up, so now we get to see how that plays out. So now we kind of fast forward a little while. The world is populated, not only with people, but with civilizations. And despite setting up the world as a place where Iblis will whisper evil and cause strife, God is looking around, and he's a bit alarmed by the sheer degree of evil that he is seeing. Yeah, Iblis, or Satan, was supposed to be doing this. He set it up that way but he was also supposed to be more of a purifying fire than an all-consuming raging inferno. He was supposed to tempt men, thus making for a better more complete human at the end of a life. But the balance is shifting too far in the evil direction. If the world is completely evil, good men have no space to grow. So to counterbalance the world, God hatches a plan and picks his man to carry it out. And that man that God chooses is Noah, or Nu, as he is called in the Quran. All the familiar elements are there. A wicked people, Noah the righteous man, a gigantic boat, in order to save all the animals two by two. The main difference in the biblical and Islamic account, though, is the focus of the story. The Islamic account focuses on the time before the flood, as Noah is warning and warning and warning an ignorant people that just won't listen. Actually, the Islamic version of Noah sounds an awful lot like Muhammad, only God storms the wicked with water rather than having the prophet raise an army. Now, this parallel likely is not an accident, You know, similar to Matthew's emphasis on portraying Jesus as he knew Moses. And like Muhammad, Noah is warning a specific community rather than an entire wicked world. In the Islamic account, there is no mention of the whole world. It appears to be a particular community that was rotten, rather than God deciding the whole world was evil. But that doesn't mean the whole world wasn't flooded in the Islamic account. Maybe it was, and maybe it wasn't. But there is no account of a worldwide flood or waiting for a dove or a rainbow like you have in the, in the Bible. The point, I think, was that any community who ignores God's messengers can expect destruction. Here's the start of the Islamic story of Noah. And you could easily substitute in Muhammad's name for all of these things. It goes like this. In the time before Noah, the people began to make statues of who they considered to be righteous men. They did this because they were deceived by Satan, who understood what would happen in the long run with this slippery slope of idolatry. At the time, they thought they would use these icons to remember God. They would create these statues, and over time and through the generations, the people eventually forgot why these statues were there in the first place. When enough time passed, Satan appeared again and urged the people to worship the statues themselves turning them into idols. Then into this cultural moment came Noah, God's first messenger, to warn the people of the danger and to steer them back onto the righteous, monotheistic path. But no one listened. They never do. Or should I say the majority never do. He got some of the poor, the unconnected, the vulnerable, but the message never landed. He talked to the great w- rewards of worshiping Allah. Nothing. No results. He warned of the punishment to come. Nothing. They just belittled him, saying he was no more than a man, and thus not qualified to tell them anything. And that's exactly what happened to Muhammad in Mecca. The idol worship, the willful blindness of entrenched powers, the ability of society's lowest people to see the truth, the inability to see a prophet in a previously normal man. And like Muhammad, Noah's message hit a brick wall. Noah gives up on the people, so he offers this prayer. This is from the Quran. Noah said, My Lord, lo, they have disobeyed me and followed one whose wealth and children increase him in naught save ruin. And they have plotted a mighty plot. And they have said, Forsake not your gods. Forsake not Wad, nor Sua, nor Yaghuth, and Ya'ug, and Nasser. And they have led many astray. And thou increasest the wrongdoers in in naught save error. Because of their sins they were drowned, then made to enter a fire. And they found they had no helpers in place of Allah. And Noah said, My Lord, leave not one of the disbelievers in the land. If thou shouldst leave them, they will mislead thy slaves and will beget none but save lewd ingrates. That's from the Quran, um, Surah 71, verses 21 to 27. So, like I said, that prayer is found in Surah 71, which is called Nu. N-U-H, which is the Arabic word for Noah. So in the Islamic story, Noah is actually requesting the flood. He's requesting it. Noah asks for the great flood and God says, okay, I'll do it. In the biblical account, God decides to cause the flood and Noah says, okay. And why would Noah want such a thing? you know, why would the Quran be saying this? It really echoes the situation of Muhammad in the time it was written. Surah 71, for example, is an early Meccan surah. So you see the story of Noah crashing through time to the current situation, as if to say, seriously, what is wrong with you people? Do you want to be destroyed? Do you all want to die? And Muhammad was probably wondering you know, if he would ever have to make a similar prayer. Uh, of course, if Muhammad thought Mecca was hostile, at least he wasn't in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago or many other places. He actually came out pretty good considering the circumstances. And frankly, so did the Meccans. They weren't destroyed. But the Islamic story of Noah also has one other interesting aspect. Not all of Muhammad's people make it onto the boat. Noah's son decides that he can save himself by going to the top of a mountain, clearly not realizing what God was trying to accomplish here. And so he drowned in the flood. This is actually a terrific story. It's not just an add-on. That's a very deep, very profound addition to the story of Noah. And it's probably one that is seen differently by Christians and Muslims. Now, in the Christian mind, this is a perfect illustration of the arrogance that makes people blind to things like grace. Rather than accept God's free gift of salvation here, Noah's son decides he can do it on his own. Why? No good reason, really. Just autonomy or an extreme type of blinding arrogance. Or actually, that's not extreme arrogance. That's run-of-the-mill arrogance. It's super common. We've all done it. And for some people, it's pretty much a default position, among men in particular. It's possible he'd rather drown than accept God's help. But it's just as possible that he's too dumb to understand his own limitations. I said this is a male problem, but I should probably amend that a bit. It's more of a young male problem. I I can just see Noah shouting up there, You idiot! What if the water goes above the mountain? then I'll just swim, the son would probably reply. And he might be serious. He might actually think that. And this is why young men make great soldiers. But an older man sees it differently. Like the Noah from Bill Cosby's old bit. Um, If you were someone who can separate Bill Cosby's comedy from his personal life, which just took pretty much the ugliest turn it could possibly take. If you can do that, I highly recommend searching for Bill Cosby Noah on a video or audio site. Again, despite what has happened since, it's easily one of the funniest bits in the history of comedy. My grandpa used to have a tape of it in his truck, and we played it constantly as kids, laughing hysterically every time. It never got old. So, in this, at one point Noah is complaining about all the things that he has to do, and God says, Noah, how long can you tread water? And Noah becomes instantly agreeable, saying, me and you, Lord, right? Me and you. That's accepting grace. That's accepting salvation. Although in this case, it's not a perfect analogy because it was under threat. It's meant to be funny. But he was clearly seeing God's carrot and the stick and making the wise choice. You can float with God or you can die on your own. It's an easy choice, at least for someone with some age and some reflection and some wisdom. Okay, so that's the Christian view, sort of. How do you think Muslims might see this? I mentioned that before the Gosby Gosby tangent there. Yes, he's being arrogant, Noah's son, that is. He's being arrogant, and it's blinding him to the fact that God knows best. And I'm sure Muslims would agree that Noah's son is an idiot. But the biggest takeaway is likely just simple disobedience. He disobeyed God and disobeyed God's messenger, so his fate is hardly surprising. Muhammad would say the same thing millennia later, only he didn't have an idiot son. Okay, so Noah's son is not the only loser in this story. In Surah 66, verse 10, there is an offhand reference to both Noah's wife and Lot's wife being in hell. Why? Well, with Lot's wife, that story is actually pretty clear. She was destroyed and then went to hell. But why Noah's wife? No one knows really, but this seems to point to another one of Noah's family members who were against him and against God. There is a very Sunni sensibility to all this, by the way. Bloodlines do not equal righteousness. But what's also important here is that it's yet another example of the style of the Quran. This is not literature. The writer is not very interested in telling you the historical facts. Noah's wife is simply mentioned to make a moral point in a sermon. What actually happened with her is either unknown or assumed knowledge. Um, So that's all I have on Noah. So let's get into probably a much larger figure in Islam, definitely a larger figure in Islam and pretty much any other religion that he is associated with. Uh, The great one himself, Abraham. Abraham is a religious giant in three religions, and Islam is one of those. Ibrahim, it's like Abraham, but starts with an I instead of an A. Ibrahim, as he is called in the Quran, was so great he was given the title of Khalil, which means God's beloved servant. That's K-H-A-L-E-E-L, Khalil. Abraham is a religious giant, as true in Islam as in Judaism. His progeny would be legendary. But before he was Abraham, as we know him, he was the son of an idol worshiper. He seems to have understood instinctually that this was wrong and his belief caused some ugly friction with his father. But God gradually revealed himself to Abraham and turned him from a Hanif, which is kind of a monotheist without a religion, into an Islamic prophet. There's a great section in Surah 6 of the Quran that describes Abraham's mindset, you know, before all this, before he was the great prophet. And it kind of shows the process through which God was guiding him to the truth. This is verses 75 to 79. Thus did we show Abraham the kingdom of the heavens and the earth, that he might be of those possessing certainty. When the night grew dark upon him, he beheld a star. He said, This is my Lord. But when it's set, he said, I love not things that set. And when he saw the moon uprising, he exclaimed, This is my Lord. But when it set, he said, Unless my Lord guides me, I surely shall become one of the folk who are astray. And when he saw the sun rising, he cried, This is my Lord. This is greater. And when it set, he exclaimed, O my people, lo, I am free from all that ye associate with him. Lo, I have turned my face toward him who created the heavens and the earth as one by nature upright, and I am not one of the idolaters. So here, Abraham is moving from worshiping the creation to worshiping the creator, from worshiping the clearly finite, the things that set, like the sun and the moon, to worshiping the infinite, which is God. By the way, In the Arabic, those lines are linked with a rhyme scheme, but the message in English is pretty great too, just the content of it. Uh, it, It takes us through the thought process of someone realizing that the creator is greater than the creation. Actually, as stated in the first verse, God is sharing his lesson plan. He is talking about greater and greater things, at least to someone looking up from the earth, the small star to the larger moon, to the giant hot ball in the sun we <laughs> to the giant hot ball in the sky that we call the sun but god teaches that as grand as these things are particularly to an ancient person who knows absolutely nothing of the planetary physics of it all they are all finite they all disappear just like anything else on the earth but god god does not disappear he is always there And this is just as relevant today. You can substitute anything a modern person considers grand and worthy of worship. Be it a person, a country, or even the whole planet. These things are all finite, and they will all eventually be gone. But God never leaves. Allah is eternal. And further, God created all these things anyway. So whatever it is in the creation you are tempted to worship, Always remember, Allahu Akbar, God is greater. So, much like Muhammad, Abraham was vocal about the error of idol worship. And it was not a popular message. It seldom is. And also like Muhammad, Abraham smashed all the idols at his local temple. There was a key difference, though. Muhammad smashed the idols of Mecca accompanied by a conquering army. Abraham did it early in his ministry, and by himself. So, Abraham goes to the temple and smashes all the idols except for the head idol, or the head god. When everyone came in and saw the smashed idols, they demanded to know who did it. Was it Abraham? No, Abraham would say. It was your supreme god, the chief idol. Hey, if you don't believe me, just ask all these other idols. They'll tell you that he did it. The people replied that these idols don't speak. And Abraham then used this as an example of how worthless those idols are. Worship God, he insisted. The real God. Clearly, these false idols are useless. Now, I just love that sequence because... It's almost a Greek-style logic bomb, almost like Socrates. And like Socrates, his logic just infuriated people. And also, like Socrates, it earned Abraham a death sentence. The people tried to burn him at the stake, but God ordered the fire to be cool for Abraham. So once the fire burned up his chains, he just walked out. Now, this is the Islamic version of Daniel in the lion's den. Well, sort of. Uh, The king in Daniel's story is a slightly sympathetic figure. But these people trying to kill Abraham? Certainly not. Uh, For the record, Daniel is not in the Quran anywhere. So Abraham was saved. But God would also command him to leave his wicked family and disbelieving community. But not all of Abraham's family rejected his belief in the one God. Two people that will probably sound familiar to Christians. They were believers. These two people were Lot and Sarah. They settled in Canaan, but were eventually forced into Egypt to find food. So now we have the familiar story of Abraham commanding Sarah to say she is Abraham's sister. This happens in the Islamic version too. But in a way that makes Abraham look a bit better and less cowardly. In the Islamic account, Abraham instructs Sarah to tell everyone that she is his sister, because perhaps that would save her from Pharaoh. Now, how? This is the difference, because Pharaoh apparently had an insatiable desire for married women. So, if she wasn't married, perhaps she would be less attractive to Pharaoh. This didn't work though, And Pharaoh took her into his harem anyway. But his sexual advances went poorly because God caused his body to stiffen. Uh, No, not that. Get your mind out of the gutter. This is a religious podcast after all. He caused his whole body, the whole thing, to stiffen, to lock up to the point he couldn't move. Sarah had to pray for his release, actually. And when he recovered, he let her go. So you see Islamic prophet archetype at work here. This is what the Islamic prophet looks like. Abraham is not a coward, and Pharaoh never defiled Sarah. God would not let that happen. In short, the Quran is setting up a different story than the Hebrew Bible, based on different points of emphasis. The Quran wants to make two things clear that the biblical story might muddle for people. God's prophets are righteous men and God would never allow anyone, even a king, to rape his prophet's wife. Abraham and Sarah left Egypt richer than they had arrived, thanks to gifts from Pharaoh, and one of those gifts was a slave named Hagar. Now, Abraham and Sarah had been promised a child, but it hadn't arrived yet. So, just like in the Bible, Abraham sleeps with Hagar, and they have a son named Ishmael. Now, here's where the Islamic story veers even further from the biblical account, like way further. Abraham is ordered to go to Mecca with Hagar and Ishmael. Now, this is a common theme of the Islamic account. Ishmael is the main son in Islamic stories of Abraham's lineage, of Abraham's son, which kind of makes sense because this is from an Arabic point of view. For those who don't know, Traditionally, the Jews are considered the descendants of Isaac, and the Arabs are descendants of Ishmael. A bit more for those who aren't aware, Jews and Arabs are both similar peoples with similar lineage and similar languages. They're among the few remaining speakers of Semitic languages, like Arabic, Hebrew, Aramaic, which was spoken by Jesus and still present in some areas adjacent to the Holy Land. Um, There are also a few more Semitic languages um, spoken in Eastern Africa. Malta, of all places, apparently. Jews and Arabs are basically cousins, and their uncles are Isaac and Ishmael. So if the Jews are Isaac and the Arabs are Ishmael, it's not surprising that the Islamic story pretty much bypasses Isaac and focuses on Ishmael. And weaving Mecca into the Abraham story makes perfect sense. It's the religious capital of the Arabs, after all. So Abraham is ordered to go to Mecca, which is no small feat at the time. We're talking about several hundred miles through the desert with an infant ishmael in the middle of the Bronze Age. That's about the same distance as New York to Florida, London to Munich, Warsaw to Moscow, Mumbai to New Delhi. Apologies for those who think in kilometers. I forgot to make that uh, translation. But yeah, that's a major test of faith. So, Abraham makes the journey in about two months with Hagar and Ishmael, something which you could probably blame on Sarah, but the the Islamic tradition, unlike the biblical tradition, doesn't really blame it on her. You know, it makes it clear that this is God's will. So, they reach Mecca. And remember, Mecca is not Mecca yet, it's just a spot in the desert. There's no city there. Abraham is instructed to leave her there in the care of God. He does so with some provisions, but they quickly run out of food and water. Hagar and Ishmael, that is. These two were alone. Hagar looked for water, but could not find it. She ran frantically between two famous hills in what is now Mecca, praying at the top of each one. Eventually, God sent Gabriel to her. Gabriel dug his heel into the ground, and water began to flow from the earth. So, God saves Hagar and gives her water just like in the Bible. But the Islamic story also emphasizes two major themes that the biblical account is not. The first, the water itself, the Zamzam well. In the Islamic story, this wasn't just God finding water in the desert for Hagar and Ishmael. It wasn't like manna in the desert or just some random miracle. The place itself was important too. The biblical account doesn't really care exactly where this happened. It doesn't matter. It says it's somewhere around Beersheba, which today is roughly south-central Israel. But the Islamic story takes place in Mecca, right next to where the Kaaba is. The well is called Zamzam, which means stop flowing. This is what Hagar said, stop flowing, as the water gushed out of the earth. The well is still there, and its water is considered sacred. The hills Hagar ran between are also marked in the modern complex around the Kaaba, making this a critical origin story in Islam, and kind of an origin story for the Arabic people as well. Um, And the second point of emphasis is God's promise to Hagar, and to Ishmael through Hagar, that he would make a great nation of Ishmael. For those of you who aren't familiar with the biblical story, the important part to remember is that Abraham married Sarah, but she couldn't have a son, at least for a while. And so Abraham had a son through his Egyptian slave, Hagar. Then later, Sarah was miraculously able to give birth to a boy named Isaac. But Hagar and Ishmael were still around. Sarah didn't like this, so Hagar and Ishmael were cast out. That's what sets up the Genesis story I mentioned before. Ishmael is considered the father of the Arabs and, spiritually, a key patriarch of the Muslims. You know, as a scholar named Louis Massignon would later say, Islam was God's response to the tears of Hagar. It was the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham's unwanted son. This is usually read as God's promise to make the Arabs a great nation, but through Islam, because it is a universal religion, The metaphor can run much deeper than that. The promise to Hagar is God's promise to the downtrodden, to the slave, to the castaway, to the unfairly oppressed, those who were stomped on by the powerful and selfish for no good reason. And this is where the Arabs were born, 4,000 years ago in Mecca. Also miraculously, a tribe happened to come by and notice that there was now water in this place. So they settled there along with Hagar and Ishmael. They had a community. Now Abraham would go back to Mecca, but in the meantime Abraham's people had some problems. The chief among them being one of the largest meteor strikes in human history. Of course, that's the modern explanation of this, Uh, It also explains the odd role of salt in the story as well. Apparently, the theory goes the meteor fragments may have landed in the salty Dead Sea after an airburst that vaporized Sodom, splashing odd formations of salt all over the area. And maybe one of those salt splashes hit Lot's wife? Who knows? It's super interesting, though. But the point is, regardless of what destroyed Sodom, you know, that story is in Islam, too. This story reads similar to the Noah story, with Lot. A prophet in Islam in the place of Noah. The people were wicked and they threatened Lot with exile because he is a righteous man. Abraham actually hosts three angels briefly, and then those angels set out to find Lot and his family. So already God has decided to to destroy the place, Uh, but Lot didn't pray for it like the Islamic Noah did. The narrative is stunningly similar to the biblical narrative, actually. And in the end, Lot's wife, who was portrayed as an evil woman, is not turned into a pillar of salt for looking back on the city. She is simply destroyed with everyone else. Except Lot, of course. Back to Abraham. Then Abraham goes back to Mecca 10 years later. And he's amazed by what this barren spot of desert had turned into. That was the good news. The bad news is that God had commanded him to sacrifice Ishmael. Not Isaac, Ishmael. (laughs) In Mecca, you know, this is the Islamic version of the famous sacrifice in the Bible. In the Islamic version, Abraham doesn't have to fool anyone. He just tells this to Ishmael flat out. From the Quran, Surah 37, verse 102. And when his son was old enough to walk with him, Abraham said, Oh, my dear son. I have seen in a dream that I must sacrifice thee. So look, what thinkest thou? He said, "O my father, do that which thou art commanded. Allah willing, thou shalt find me of the steadfast. So Abraham said, son, I have to kill you. And Ishmael replied, okay, kill me. That makes for an exceptionally boring story, but that's not the point. In the Islamic story, the complete and unquestioning submission to God is the point. That's the virtue, and it's shared by father and son. Like in the Bible, God is impressed and stops this at the last possible second. This is followed by praise for Abraham, and this is a very big deal for Muslims. So, not only did the Muslims make this story their own, it's so big, it's a major Muslim holiday called eid ul Adha. Later, Abraham goes back to Mecca a third time, and this is when the two build the Kaaba, that giant cube at the center of the Grand Mosque in Mecca. This cements the Arabic identity as being linked to the Kaaba, Abraham and Ishmael, and by extension, the Muslim identity as well. Next time, we'll be heading back to Egypt with Jacob and Joseph. The story of Joseph takes up the entirety of Surah 12 in the Quran, so it's an important one for Muslims, at least as far as the Old Testament prophets are concerned. And you may be noticing a theme with some of these Islamic figures. A similar story, but not quite. As the great Tommy Chong said to Cheech once, it's like the same thing, only different. And what tends to be different is the emphasis, the lesson the reader is supposed to infer by reading it. And you will see the same thing with Joseph. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah.